If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to John John 14. We'll be reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 31. John 14. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, and that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, the way you know, Thomas said to him. Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father and also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Also, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will magnify yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my works, my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, 
you may believe. I will no longer talk with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. May your unfailing love come to us, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then will we answer the ones who taunt us, for we trust in your word. Do not snatch the word from our mouths, for we have put our hope in your gospel. We will always stand in your gospel forever and ever. We will walk about in freedom, for we seek out your precepts. We will deliver your truth before kings and will never be put to shame. For we delight in your word, we love it, and we meditate on it in our hearts daily. Help us this day to hear your word and to grow in our understanding of all you have done to save our souls. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We have gathered this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Our text will be John 14, 1 through 6. But we can't start this sermon without a quick look back at chapter 13. While John doesn't give us the details of the first supper, he does tell us about what happened as the supper came to a close. Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. He then, through John, lets them know that it's Judas Iscariot. After Judas had left the supper, Jesus removes his garment and puts a towel around himself and proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. He did this to show them they needed to be humble and serve others. He then engages with Peter and tells Peter he will deny him this very night three times. This sets the stage for the words that follow in chapters 14 through 17. He also tells them he will be going away. I can't imagine how hard these words must have hit them. Their hearts must have been hurting as they contemplated what he said. I'm sure as the thought of these things filled their minds, their confidence was shattered and they felt completely devastated. Jesus would have known what was there, what was in their hearts and how they feared what was coming. Please understand, they didn't have a full understanding of what they would face this night. But they knew something was about to happen. Therefore, Jesus sets about in his conversation with them to put their hearts at ease. He speaks about things that would be reflective of the Lord's Supper and all that it meant. He told them in very plain language who he was and what he, he, his purpose was in coming into this world. He opened for them a deeper understanding of their Father in heaven. He spoke to them about prayer, how it will be answered. He told them of the coming of the new helper. He made it clear that he and the Father are one, showing that anyone, anyone who loves him and keeps his word, the Father also will love them, and he and the Father will come and make their home with him. He will give to all who love Jesus 
the gift of his peace. These are all things that show us a principle, or maybe two or three, from the Lord's Supper. As we turn now to John 14, 1 through 6, we will see three very important things. First, Christ's words of comfort. Second, Christ's mission. And third, Christ's revelation. We come to chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now please understand, this is a very powerful verse. Jesus is telling his disciples to no longer let your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious about things. The indication is that they had had troubled hearts. These men had been overcome, overcome with a lot of things to consider, and they were not prepared to handle them. This night had laid much on their hearts. They heard the implementation of the Lord's Supper as it was transposed out of the Passover. They learned that one of them would betray their master. They were reminded that Jesus must die in order for the gospel to be complete. He also told them he was going away. They also hear Jesus tell Peter he will deny him three times before the rooster crows that morning. I can only imagine how hard this hit each one of them. It surely was enough to trouble the stoutest of hearts. You can be sure these men were feeling the pressure of their own commitment. They would all fail as they ran away as Jesus was arrested. Not one stood with Jesus. Oh, Peter, in a bold attempt to show Jesus his faith, drew his sword and struck a man in the ear. But Jesus told him to put it away and heal the man's ear. After Jesus was arrested and carried away, again, Peter followed along in the shadows and sneaked into the courtyard where Jesus was being tried. He wanted to show his commitment, but as people began to recognize him, his faith weakened, and he denied the Lord three times just as Jesus said he would. So you can see how much these men had on their minds and hearts. One of the main things they must have had on their minds is if this man is the Messiah, how can he be betrayed? Their faith was in jeopardy. Yes, they loved their master, and they hoped against hope. This is the backdrop of these words. Let not your heart be troubled. This is a call to all who would believe and trust in Jesus Christ and be suffering hard times and troubling times. He wants you to see that you are not called to just sit by and watch the world pass by. This would be very hard because it would cause the destruction of your life. We have recourse in troubled times. And these recourses are what Jesus is wanting them to see. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Throughout the New Testament, this doctrine is expounded, but as his disciples should know, it's not found just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. So what does this message say to us today? This is what the rest of this verse tells us. What you need to see is that Jesus is calling you to remain calm. He's wanting you to be untroubled in all the circumstances of your life. There's a philosophy. Epicureanism was founded by a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. He rejected determinism, which said every action is governed by something or someone outside of yourself. In its place, he advocated hedonism which is always seeking pleasure as the highest good. But this was kind of a restrained version he had. He said mental pleasure was regarded more highly than physical, and the ultimate pleasure was held to be freedom from anxiety and mental pain, especially that arising from needless fear of death and of the gods. It also stressed the necessity of remaining calm and untroubled in all circumstances of life. What then is the difference between Christianity and Epicureanism? John shows in this verse the difference that is really great. The reasoning of Epicureanism and its present day equivalents, according to William Hendrickson, is this. Do not be disturbed for the gods. If they exist at all, do not take notice of you. In Christianity, there is a very different understanding, as John shows. In Jesus' teaching, it says, Do not be disturbed, for the God whom you trust does take notice of you. He hears your prayers. He loves you. He sets you free from worry. Therefore, you can see Christ and Christ alone gives the only adequate ground for this verse. It's in Christ that your comfort and assurance grows and it prepares you to control trouble. How are you to gain such a life? You believe in God, believe also in me. Let me give you a more literal translation of this. Believe in God and in me, believe. What you need to know about this verse is it has three imperatives. An imperative is a command. It's a call to do what it commands. You are commanded not to allow your heart to be continually troubled. That's a command from Christ. You are commanded to believe in God and also to believe in Jesus Christ. You cannot overcome your troubles without belief in the one and only true and living God as he's here represented in God the Father and God the Son. At this time in the lives of the disciples, they loved Jesus as their master, savior, and Lord. 
but their faith in him as a Messiah, as their Lord and Savior, is now wavering. Jesus knows that within a few hours, he'll be tried and sent to die on the cross and be buried in the grave. He also knows the disciples' faith will be undermined even more. He is well aware that the only way to cure their troubled heart is for their assurance to be regained in him as their Savior. Now, they don't yet understand the need for his suffering and dying. This is why he tells them they need to believe in the same thing where faith is concerned. Did I say that right? Believing and trusting are basically the same thing where faith is concerned. There's no difference. It is faith alone that can build the hope they need. The only thing that can ease the troubled thoughts is their minds and hearts is faith. The only thing. There's nothing else that can change them. Now what is faith? Faith is believing God. He is telling his disciples, believe what God has given in his word and what Jesus has revealed to you through his life and death. You look to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ only. That's what faith is. Placing your focus on him and keeping it there. One of the clear implications in this verse that should be reinforced by what the Lord's table shows is that the Father and Son are one. Jesus himself is God. This is shown clearly in the literal translation I gave you. Believe in me and in, believe in God and in me believe. You're to believe in both of them. The meaning is believe in God and in me because we are one. Here is the message of comfort the heart of man needs. This is the comfort that will allow you to carry forward on the imperative to not be continually troubled. Now why is this such a comfort to disciples? Look at verses 2 through 4. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. After his resurrection, after the work of the gospel is complete, what is there for Jesus to continue working on? What is his mission? We know he sits at the Father's right hand, making intercession for his people. He describes that a little differently here. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Jesus had been confronting his, comforting his disciples concerning his separation from them. Here he tells them why he's going away. What, does, what comfort does he offer? He points out that in his father's house, which is where he is going, has plenty of room for everyone. This will not be a tenement situation where many people are as possible are crammed into one room, a one-room apartment. No, this will be a great apartment building with many large roomy apartments for his children where they will have room and comfort. He calls these apartments mansions to show how great they will be. 
Now, you really need to, to keep in mind 1 Corinthians 2.9 when thinking about this. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So, stop. Think of the most wonderful mansion you have ever seen in this world. Take that idea, throw it away. Because it cannot do justice to these mansions prepared for you in heaven. Jesus continues saying, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus says, you can count on this. You can take it to the bank. If it weren't true, I would have told you so. Jesus is the God-man who was sent by the Father to reveal the truth to all men. He cannot lie, which is exactly what Paul told Titus in the letter to him in Titus 1-2. He makes it clear. He is going to prepare a place for you. What this means is that he is taking his blood and broken body back to heaven to the Father. He's doing this to make sure the price for your sin is covered and you will be welcomed into the Father's presence. This was his mission. He completed the part on earth and now takes his seat at the Father's side to ever, to ever intercede for you. That means he will be at the Father's side for eternity interceding for you. He completed the part on earth and now takes his seat at the Father's side. What a wonderful thought. He's there at the Father's side speaking on your behalf. Without his atoning death on Calvary's cross, without the perfect life Jesus lived on earth, without his victory over death through his resurrection, without his ascension, without the sending forth of the Holy Spirit, there could never be a place for you in heaven. You would never be ready without Jesus Christ. He ties the hope of all believers together with this in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The coming again Jesus speaks of in this verse is the counterpart to his going away. This is a referral to his second coming. The second coming is to be fulfilled, is to fulfill the promise that he will return to take them to be with him. The translation here reads, and receive you to myself. This shows what he really means about this prepared place. He will return to gather his people into his heart. He comes to take you into his embrace. And it's an embrace like you have never known before. This will be an eternal embrace. That will bring this will that will bring you a divine comfort and assurance of his love for you that will last in eternity. This is the re, this is reinforced by his last statement in this verse that where I am there you may be also. Isn't that wonderful? We're going to be with the Lord. You can see that there will be a very intimate connection between Christ and those who are his in this embrace. 
he then lays on them a very important invitation. Look at verse 4. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. This is an invitation. Although it's an invitation that is somewhat veiled. The invitation is to the way. He's calling them to follow him. He says, you know the way. This is where the veil is seen. What he means is, you know me, I am the way. But he has never told them that he is the way. He has alluded to it a number of times, most obviously in John chapter 10. John 10, 7, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 37 38, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Clearly, he's showing he and the Father are one. And he is the way to the Father. This statement is a clear invitation. It says, come to the Father by means of me, the way. Jesus has spoken about what he was going to do for the disciples. He was going to prepare a place for them. He's preparing a place for you right now if you place your hope and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. If he is the only source you see of salvation and you're not looking at anything else, then he's preparing a place for you. One of these mansions that you can't even begin to imagine what it's like. He was going to send another helper, a helper who was to come again and was going to take them with him. I'm sorry, I didn't say that right. He was going to send another helper, was going to come again and was going to take them with him. Those are the three things he's going to do for you. He also wanted to make sure they knew this didn't mean there was nothing for them to do. He is clearly saying they must come to the house where there is a place prepared for them. They must come through faith in Jesus Christ as the way to God and heaven. Your responsibility is to believe, to believe what the scripture tells you, to believe what it says about Jesus Christ, that he's the one who was sent from the Father to do for you what you could never do. He lived the perfect life. He died the atoning death. He won the resurrection victory. And it is through him and through him alone that you can enter heaven. He is clearly saying they must come to the house. They must come and prepare themselves. That's the whole point. They're to be prepared. They must come through faith in Jesus as the way to God and the Father. This is the greatest revelation in Scripture. There is no greater revelation. This is Christ's revelation. Look at verses 5 and 6. Thomas said to me, Lord, we know not where you're going, and how, we may know, how, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The disciples are faced with trying to understand this great revelation they've just been given. Thomas is the one who shows courage in asking what they all are thinking. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Thomas makes it clear. None of these men understood what Jesus was saying to them. Oh, they knew the words, but not the meaning behind them. 
Thomas in this question shows several things about himself and thus about all disciples. He says, we don't know where you're going or the way to follow you. His objection is clear. You haven't shown us this way. You haven't given us a map. This comes from the weakness of their faith. Yet in this, we see the devotion of these men. They want to follow Jesus. But they fail to understand how they do that. They love their master. Now you need to understand, Thomas has at the heart of his question two errors. First, he was thinking of Jesus leaving them as being a change in address. He thought he was going somewhere else on the earth to live. In this case, the way Jesus speaks of would be like an ordinary road, an address you get. In John 7.35, the religious leaders got into a confrontation with Jesus, and they were going to arrest him. He said, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will see me, seek me, and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Pharisees thought he must mean that he was going to those Jews dispersed in the Roman Empire to hide from them. It's the same error Thomas and the disciples made. They saw it strictly as a physical address that he was speaking about. The second error Thomas makes is that all the disciples thought that Jesus meant the way or the direction they were to follow. In other words, you've got to give us a map. You've got to give us some directions how to get there. He was not referring to the directions that showed the way to go, but the way or the character that led them to the way. He wanted them to see he was the way and they wanted him, he wanted them to follow him. They needed to be like him. They needed to be made in his image. What you must see in this question from Thomas is that there is an element of truth. That truth is that he who does not know the destination will not know the way. Jesus continues this with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's important to note in this that each of the words in this predicate are preceded by a definite article, the way, the truth, the life, making each part of the predicate equally important. Let's begin our look at verse 6. It's clear Jesus doesn't just show the way, he is the way. The disciples in Luke 20, 21 said they knew Jesus taught the way of God in truth. So we can see it is true. He teaches the way and he guides in the way that leads to God. He has dedicated a new and living way. As Hebrews 10, 20 shows, that way is through him. What we learn from this is that Jesus is God. God is equal to each of his attributes. He possesses each attribute in eternal decree. He has the attribute of love. Therefore, he is, as John says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. The same applies to all his attributes. God is righteous. God is holy. And you could go through the whole list of his attributes. He is each one of them. 
you must also pay close attention to the pronoun I. This makes it very clear. You were not saved by a principle. Some principle that has been laid out. That's not what saves you. You were not saved by force. Something came into you and just ripped you apart and put you back together again. You were saved by a person. We are all persons. We were estranged from our God. Lost from him with no way for us to get back to him. Jesus, as a person, came into this world. He came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. To be reconciled to your heavenly father. It's through him and through him alone that we can access the way to heaven and reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. He adds to the predicate, I am the truth. This could be seen in several different ways, but the true way to look at it here is that Jesus stands over against the lie. William Henson says, Jesus is the truth because he is the dependable source of redemptive revelation. That means Jesus is the source of everything that is true. Just as the way is a living way, so the truth is a living truth. That makes it an active truth. It reaches out. It takes hold of you as a believer. It exerts a powerful influence on you. It sanctifies. It sets you free. Again, this is not a principle. It's not a force, but a person. Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth, and he came into this world to open for you the way into heaven, to give you the truth of your condition and God's plan. As you come to this table this morning, you need to come understanding what Jesus has prepared for you, what he has done for you. Jesus also makes life a part of this predicate. He says, I am the life. Please understand, Jesus is not talking about your breathing, which keeps the body alive. He's not talking about your soul. He's not talking about life being outwardly manifested. No, he's talking about life as opposed to death. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. All the attributes of God are in the Son of God. Because of these attributes, he has life within himself, and he can give life to those who are his. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, he is the light of the world. That means he is the life of the world. He, can, he came that he might have life and an abundance of life. Light, light, life is opposite of death. Death is the separation from God. Therefore, life is fellowship with God. That's an important point. Just as death means separation from God, so life means communion with him. Jesus provides everything for our salvation we could never give. What we learn from this passage and what we see on the table are the same things. Dr. Hendricks says all three are active and dynamic. The way brings to God the truth makes them free. The life produces fellowship.
So how do you see these three being related to each other? Do you see the, them from a single concept, the true and living way? The context will tell us that Christ is the truth and the life, just as he is the way. But it also says that the idea of the way predominates. Therefore, the meaning is, I am the way because I am the truth and the life. You should see that when Jesus reveals God's redemptive truth, men are set free from the darkness of sin. When he plants the seed of life, men grow into fellowship with the Father. Then Jesus is the way that they, by sovereign grace, have chosen, bringing them to the Father, leading Jesus to continue by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. Therefore, men are completely dependent upon Jesus Christ for their understanding of redemptive truth, as well as the spark of life that causes that truth to come alive in their hearts. This makes it clear, no one, no one, can come to the Father except they come through Jesus Christ. For he is the one and only way. If Christ is removed, there can be no redemptive truth, no everlasting life, therefore no way to the Father. If you look at this table, you can see the way into everlasting life because this table is grounded upon the truth and filled with life. Jesus came into this world to live the perfect life you could never live. He, claimed, he came to die the atoning death and to offer a sacrifice for sin that you could never do. He won the resurrection victory to defeat your arch enemy death. He did all of these things standing on the truth of God while he lived the perfect life to become the one and only way to God the Father. At this table, Open your eyes to see all that your Lord has done to save your soul. Then lift your hands, lift your heart and your voice to sing, to sing the praises of your almighty God. Let us pray. Father, we come to stand before your throne this day. As we come with hearts filled with questions and concerns, we hear your words of comfort to not all. Let our hearts be troubled. You call us to believe in our Heavenly Father and to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to hear through our hearts the guidance you give. Help us to see and know Jesus Christ as you sent him to us and to be our way, our truth, and our life. Grant us as your children place all of our hope and confidence in this one you sent to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Keep it clear in our hearts that our salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.